Thousands of children in New York City are in need of a good home because for one reason or another, their biological families are unfit to care for them. Good morning, I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, we'll explore the challenges and rewards of foster parenting and adoption in New York City. Our first guest this morning is well-versed in the subject matter. Jeanette Ruiz is the Deputy Commissioner for Family Permanency Services for the Administration for Children's Services, or ACS as it's known. Jeanette, thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm happy to join you. How many children are currently in the city's foster care system? Currently, um, we have approximately 17,200 children in out-of-home placements in New York City. Does that number vary from year to year? Actually, over the last three years, it's remained fairly consistent. Um, there are spikes and then there are lows, but it's remained in the, in the area of 16 to, to 17 plus thousand in the last two years. What are the primary reasons children end up in foster care? The primary reason that children are placed in foster care is for safety um, reasons. Um, and mostly it's children who um, there are concerns about their safety and concerns about child abuse or neglect. I know after the death of seven-year-old Nix Mary Brown last year, you were flooded with phone calls regarding child abuse, uh, potential child abuse. Has that leveled off a bit? It has leveled off a bit, although, as you indicated, there were several, I, I would say, certainly for the entire year of 2006. There was a very significant increase in the number of calls through the state central registry. Of course, not all those calls resulted in the actual placement of children, but they were calls uh, made to the state registry um, alleging um, possible neglect and abuse. A lot has taken place since the death of Nix Mary Brown in terms of changes to the system. We've hired a number of, of new staff um, to ensure that we're adequately staffed at the front end where, where our investigations occur. Um, we also have hired, for example, former police officers to also help and work with our caseworkers, especially on the more difficult cases where having um, support, um, uh, law enforcement support, is, is, is critical as it was in the McSperry case. We've also um, strengthened our our, our managerial uh, staffing. We've hired a number of new managers, and um, and so we've done a lot of hiring, training, um, and, and at the front end to ensure that we're able to protect every child that needs protection in New York City. Is there a typical foster kid? No, <laughs> no, there isn't. Um, uh, I can tell you, for example, that half of our census, half of the 17,000 plus children in foster care today are 12 or older. And that, in fact, um, our census um, continues to, um, there, there's a continuing increase of adolescents in foster care. Any particular reason for that? I think it's just that our population is getting older. A number of children do come in through, uh, other than uh, child abuse and neglect. Another um, vehicle for children coming into foster care may be PINS petitions or juvenile delinquency um, cases. The PINS are persons in need of supervision, and these are children who, um, you know, may be in in some pre-delinquent behavior um, who come into foster care that, that way. Is it more common for foster kids to be reunited with their birth families or to be adopted by another family? But reunification is still a much higher rate. Um, that's what we call when a child returns home, it's a reunification, than adoption. The city works with a number of foster care agencies, I think some three dozen, right? There's about, yes, in the foster care area, there's about 36, 38 uh, private foster um, boarding home agencies that we work with and contract with. And funding for those agencies is also something that has changed? 
Commissioner Manley recently announced a plan where we, uh, uh, phase one, we would uh, provide the funding in a much more flexible way than we currently provide it. Currently, we pay providers um, per child per day. We're looking to really provide that funding in a lot more flexible way to really um, give providers the flexibility to put in services that might help expedite permanency and, and children returning home earlier without the penalty of losing dollars if they do so. I know that some people have expressed concern that this may force agencies to push kids out of the system too quickly. We're also doing enhanced monitoring to ensure that we're looking at outcomes. We're doing family team conferences on a regular basis um, in this phase one where we'll be meeting with the families and the providers on a quarterly basis and then also be having these specialized meetings if there's a threat to a placement, if there's a goal change to adoption. Um, so there'll be other specialized family team conferences. So, in fact, we'll be um, really very involved in, in the care and the decision-making for each child in foster care along with our partners, the provider agencies. In order to take in a foster child or to adopt, you do need to register with an agency. How should someone go about choosing an agency? I'm sure it must be a difficult thing to do. Our philosophy is really community-based, and so, for example, we have a, um, a, a hotline here at ACS that's 676-WISH um, is the number. And so when uh, citizens are interested and they call our number, what we do is we provide them with the names of the provider agencies that are in their immediate um, neighborhoods and district because we really are trying very hard to keep children in their neighborhoods and to minimize the disruption to their lives when they are placed in foster care. Um, for adoption, we have... Um, a number of adoption agencies that we work with who provide specialized adoption training. And so um, those are more borough-based as opposed to more neighborhood-based. Are adoptions up or down in the city? They're a little down, but that's because the census has decreased. So therefore, proportionately, the number of children available for adoption has decreased. Um, but on average, at the height when the census was really um, the foster care census was really high. We were up in the 33, 3,500 adoptions annually, and we're now in the neighborhood of 2,000 to 1,800. Jeanette Ruiz is the Deputy Commissioner for Family Permanency Services for the Administration for Children's Services, or ACS. Jeanette, thanks so much. Thank you. Once again, if you want more information on adoption, you can call 212-676-WISH. You can also find more information on other ACS services at nyc.gov backslash ACS. As Jeanette mentioned, ACS works closely with a host of child care and adoption agencies. One such agency is the Jewish Child Care Association. We recently met a mother and daughter who found each other through the JCCA and eventually made the decision to move from foster care to adoptive family. My name is Michelle Jones. I'm a foster parent, adoptive parent, and a parent. My name is Anna Andrew Jones. I'm an adopted teen. I got a phone call telling me, oh, we got this great kid for you. And I says, really? He says, yeah, um, you're going to love her a whole lot. I says, really? He says, yeah. I says, okay. And I said, we're going to give you her number. Maybe I can hook up and meet for Thanksgiving dinner. And they gave me her number, and I kept calling the group home for like a week. She would never come to the phone. Never. When my staff told me that Michelle kept calling me, I was like, oh, this lady, she's just bugging me a little bit too much. Then one day I decided to, like, actually call her. And then she's like, well, I'm 52, so 
in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, this is this old lady. I'm going to help her change and all this other stuff, help her with her cane. And then when I met her, like, me and my staff went together, and then I see this real short lady with dreadlocks in her hair. And I said, hi, Anna. And she says, oh, I'm looking for an old lady. <laughs> well, you don't have that here. Anyway, we're, we're going to keep this moving because we're going out to my daughter's for Thanksgiving dinner. And we went over to my daughter's house, and um, she fitted in like a glove. You know, I was cooking, and um, we was preparing Thanksgiving dinner, and she just jumped in. They start calling her Cousin Anna immediately because she just jumped in the kitchen. And it was like, well, that's Cousin Anna already, and she felt at home. Then she came in with all her clothes saying she's going to live here. I says, okay, now I'm serious. Do you go to school? She says, yeah. I says, okay. What school you go to? She says, high school. Well, she didn't go to high school. She went past the high school. <laughs> every day, <laughs> every day this girl would go past high school. I couldn't figure out for the world why would she keep doing that. I didn't like school. Michelle got me into liking school. No, I'm pretty good in school. I go to a job training GED program, trying to get my GED. We didn't talk about adoption at that time. We just was too busy trying to get her settled into home, into school, into a routine of going to school. That was my main focus. My goal was to go move with my sister in Guatemala. So the agency decided to um, let me go take a trip and have like a, what was it, a two-week vacation with my sister, see if I wanted to go stay there. No, I didn't. It was a nice, it was a nice place to visit. I love my sister dearly, but I think it's better me and her just staying sisters, not being her mother, being a mother to me. So I spoke to Michelle. I was all the way in Guatemala, third world country. I called Michelle. I'm like, listen, I can't do it anymore. You're gonna adopt me. That's all I said. I'm like, you're gonna adopt me. You're gonna be my mother. I'm gonna have your last name. Adopting is just being home. That's it. It's no different. It's just a piece of paper. That's the way it is. It's a piece of paper. It's a commitment to her. It's not to say her mother is a race because her mother is definitely not a race. Right. My slogan is, what's wrong with two moms? What's wrong with ten uncles, ten aunts, you know? And Anne embraces family just like that. For me, like, Michelle, since she's my adopted mom, I call her A mom, and my biological mom, I call her B mom. So a lot of friends are, like, on my on my phone, I have mommy and I have mom. So they're like, who's mommy? I'm like, oh, that's my B mom. And they're like, who's mom? I'm like, oh, that's my A mom. <laughs> and that's the goal to show you that adoption work, that it doesn't matter if you're the A or the B. Mm-hmm. It matters if you have that connection and you have that relationship. As long as we respect each other and we understand who we are, all is well. Don't give up. Even if, I don't care if you're 21 with the baby. Don't give up. If you say that you want to get adopted, still get adopted. Even, like, a lot of my friends tell me, like, oh, you're Hispanic, and you have curly Puerto Rican here. And I'm like, um, they're like, she has dreads. What are you going to do when you walk down the street? I'm like, it doesn't matter if you're orange and the mother's purple. Get a, get, it doesn't matter what color they are, what ethnicity they are. It, it's, it means that you're, that's your mother and you're in a safe home. You know, it's home. It's family. 
Michelle Jones and Anna Andrew Jones live in Brooklyn. They found each other through the Jewish Child Care Association's foster home program. More information at jccany.org. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. In a minute, we'll hear from a local woman who has written a new book about her experiences as a foster mother. Joining me now in the studio is Brooklyn resident Sarah Gerstenzang. Sarah has firsthand experience with the New York City foster care system. She took in a foster daughter in February of 2001. She and her husband, Michael, have since adopted that little girl. Sarah chronicles her experiences in a new book called Another Mother, Co-Parenting with the Foster Care System. Sarah, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. First of all, why did you and your husband decide to become foster parents? We had always thought about being foster parents. Um, My husband actually had lived with some family friends for about five months when his mother was pregnant um, in the hospital with his brother. And my stepfather's family had also had experience. It's just something that had we had just had on our mind and um, just were waiting for the right opportunity to start. We should point out that you already had two of your own children. Right. I had given birth to two children, um, and at the time that we decided to move forward with this, um, well, when we started the training, they were eight and um, five, I guess. Would you consider yourself a typical foster family? No, probably not, but um, there are hundreds of thousands of people who do and have, you know, provided foster care over, uh, you know, across the country and over the years. But I'd say, you know, I have a master's in social work, and my husband's a lawyer. Um, he works downtown. That's probably not the typical um, typical foster parent. Many of the people that we met um, would probably be more, I would say, you know, middle-income working class maybe, um, very nice families, sometimes immigrants, um, people, you know, where English was a second language. Um, it's a nice mix of people. You take issue with the term foster in itself, the term foster child. I would never say foster child, um, I, especially uh, now that my daughter um, was, some people would say, a foster child. And I think there's a real negative connotation to that term. And it's just like in medicine now, we, we don't say somebody's a schizophrenic. You know, they, we say it's a person who has schizophrenia. We don't label people because you know, that had, my daughter went into care, had nothing to do with her. It was just her family circumstances. And it it feels that people are um, labeling her as less than or categorizing her as rather than the capable, great, normal kid that she is. And so I think just using that label actually doesn't help the situation. You specifically asked for a child between birth and two years old. Right. How come you wanted a child so young? You know, we were nervous, but we were also really excited. We thought, you know, it's kind of an opportunity to um, do the the pieces of parenting that you think are the most fun. If you, you know, love running around in the park, you might take a six-year-old. <laughs> if you, We love the babies. You know, we love feeding them and carrying them around and, and holding them. I think, you know, we didn't care about the gender, but if you love girls, you could – or you have boys and you want to grow. You know, it's kind of – it's the fun piece of it 
putting those parameters um, around the type of child that you think might be, fit best into your family. You also didn't care about the race, and in fact, you were given a black child. That's right. Yep, our family um, of birth is is white, and you know we thought, well, we're temporary caretakers, so really it doesn't matter. I mean, we'll take any child that's in need. Our our neighborhood is um, very mixed race, so we thought, well, and the child would be very young, so it really didn't matter to us, and we thought it wouldn't matter from the child's perspective. We did think about that more in depth later when we um, decided to adopt her, and we really worried about whether that would be a decision and that would be best for her. Um, but in fact, um, I think maybe we worried too much about that. <laughs> so, And also the, the black community community has been incredibly supportive to her. And I we felt that maybe she would lose part of her culture. And, um, you know, it's not perfect, but I think uh, she's a very healthy, happy child. So hopefully that will not be something that she feels is lacking when she gets older. There were several <clears throat> times throughout your experience where you questioned whether she'd be better off with a black family. That's right. We, I mean, I think it's, well, most importantly, it provides the child with privacy. I mean, everyone knows she's adopted and, um, you know, there's nothing shameful in that. But uh, at the same time, I think you don't need to be constantly <laughs> asked about it or, you know, we wouldn't move now very easily because then sh we'd have to reintegrate ourselves. Everybody in the school and in our neighborhood knows us. So she's not faced with that all the time. But because we aren't the same race, I would be a consideration in terms of like thinking about moving to another neighborhood or another city. Yeah, I think so. It provides privacy for the child. And I certainly think that every culture has their own areas of pride and um, their history. And if you grew up in that, you're more able to communicate that to a child. And that's a gift that every child should have. So we have to work at that a little bit more. Did you ever experience racism? Not anything overtly that I could think about. I mean, that, I mean, you know, I mentioned the book one time, a, a young woman at a cashier sort of, you know, as a cashier at a grocery store, so rolled her eyes at me and very pointedly looked at the baby, looked at me. But, you know, that was really one minor um, thing. You know, once or twice I've wondered about, I think this is a thing, you know, I'm a white person, but I know that there is racism I, and I'm much more aware of it now. And so I may experience maybe what black people feel and that you sometimes something happens a certain way and you kind of think, hmm, I wonder if that's because we're a mixed race family or, you know, you, you, you start to wonder a little bit. But really, in general, I, we have really not had any uh, issues at all. Let's talk about the certification process, because you write in the book that it felt very invasive at times. Mm -hmm. How so? You fill out an application, and um, you know you have to write a lot of personal information. How were you disciplined as a child? How close are you to certain family members? And you know you really have to lay out your your personal life. They ask about your marriage. You know, I don't remember exactly all the questions, but it it feels very personal, and you you know they're judging you. I mean, they have the power to license you or not, and so you. Um, you know, you're trying to sort of put on your best face, but it's also, especially if the first time you're going through it, you don't really quite know what, wh how they're making their decision. Like if um, they could turn you down um, because they feel you you work too many hours, for example, or so you you feel very judged, and it's um, you know it's very different than having a birth child where no one <laughs> asks you a single question, and it's totally private. You know, it's just. Um, 
And, you know, a lot of those, um, the requirements, the criminal background checks um, and letters of reference are really to protect the child. I mean, we have to do it. We can't just place children who are very vulnerable already with anybody off the street. It has to be done. But it does feel um, it takes a lot of courage to go through that and continue with the process. You also write in the book that the process, quote, seemed to focus on keeping bad foster parents out, not necessarily on getting good ones certified. You know, they don't really ask you about your parenting skills so much. I mean, they look at your family and, um, you know, they ask for a report from our kids' school, for example, to make sure they go to school and um, the basic things. But it didn't feel very inclusive. It's almost, you know, really what you're doing is you're wanting to show you're a good parent because that's what you're applying to do as parent a child. But um, really what it feels like is that it's you're trying to just get through the process sometimes. Um, You know, they talk a lot about, you know, not, um, you know, you can't hit the child. You you know, I remember one kind of gruesome discussion about, you know, children can't kneel on rice as punishment. I mean, that's really just not a normal (laughs) upbringing. So rather than thinking about, um, you know, here's where you are as a parent, and here's what we can do to help you because here's some of the circumstances of the children. And they do talk a little, you know, a bit about, you know, what the kids have been through and how um, they can be helped. But I think it should, it would be nice if it was a little bit more nurturing. I mean, it's a, it's intimidating to go through the process. And we need foster parents and we need adoptive parents for kids in foster care. And so the more nurturing that an agency can be, um, And just because you're terrible at getting through the process, you know, maybe your paperwork's late or it's sloppy or uh, something, you know, that shouldn't preclude you if you're going to be a great parent for a child. As a parent, I'm sure when your child's sick, the first thing you want to do is get them to a doctor, get the medication. That was difficult for you with your foster child. And I hate to say (laughs) foster child because I know you don't (laughs) like that term, but it was hard. Uh, That's right. I mean, it's you know, the agency and the city are actually the parents. That's why I call it the book Co-Parenting with the Foster Care System. They have legal responsibility for the child. So it's really a lot of things are not like a normal family life. So, for example, I would bring my children to the pediatrician in my neighborhood. But for our daughter, when she was in foster care, we had to bring – well, we brought her to the agency for her checkups. But if she were very ill, then we needed to bring her to the emergency room, which anybody who's ever been there, you know, you'd wait forever. So we actually paid for our pediatrician sort of to be on call for her. Um, And in the end, that didn't work out that well because the agency, I guess, was receiving funding. So they they didn't want to be caught up in some fraud scam, I guess. It's complicated. But you can see how the system – can break down and make things sort of unreasonably difficult when as a parent you're just trying to do what's really best for the child. But because they have legal obligations, um, you know, it it can get into sort of a tangled, uh, not necessarily logical approach. Do you think that these challenges discourage people from becoming foster parents or can discourage them? I think most the most average Americans don't know very much about foster care. I don't think they even, uh, you know, take those first steps, which is a shame. I um, because it's as difficult as it is. It's a life changing event. I mean, it's just one of the most exciting things you can do with yourself. Um, 
But I think that people are intimidated. They don't want to be regulated. They don't want somebody coming in their home and looking around their house. And you have to sort of get beyond and you have to understand why they're doing that um, and hopefully have a good agency that you have a sort of work as a team together so that you build up trust and it doesn't feel so invasive. But um, I think it's reasonable that people don't want to, um, you know, sometimes to deal with that kind of bureaucracy and, um, you know, standing in line at the WIC office. Um, so, yeah, but I, I hope people look beyond that because if people don't, then kids, you know, are staying in places where they shouldn't be, you know, group homes or institutional situations if there aren't enough homes for them to live in. You went into this knowing that there may come a point where you would have to give this child up again. Mm -hmm. You would have to give this child back to uh, her birth mother Mm -hmm. or perhaps place her in another home. And you were told that you may have to do that, that you may have to place this child in another home where one of her half-sisters was living. Did you ever think that you would grow attached, as attached as you got to this child? I don't think I realized how attached we would grow. I Maybe we were a little protectively naive um, about it. But, um, you know, our daughter does have um, half-siblings, and um, it it is a policy in New York State, New York City, to place children with their half-siblings or full siblings. And I completely believe in this policy. I think it is the absolute right thing to do. Our our situation got very complicated, and so um, in the end, they allowed us to adopt her. um, And because we were so attached and she attached to us, they felt it was in her best interest because the time had dragged on. Um, for her to stay with us. But, um, you know, when you're a foster parent, I mean, you can go and be a foster parent and be a temporary caregiver, or you can choose to adopt from the foster care system children who are already freed for adoption when it's no longer possible for them to go home to their birth families. But we have to do it that way. I mean, it's best for every child to live with their birth family if it's at all possible. It's absolutely in their best interest. And I think that if you love a child and care for them, you as the responsible caregiver, as difficult as it is, should support that. You should be working with that family and making sure that family is getting all the services that they need. Um, I think it's like a moral obligation um, to them as adults, but also especially for that child because um, it's a loss when you don't grow up with your birth family. Um, it's not that you can't be happy and healthy and um, have a great life, but it's it's a loss and. Um, Our laws are written with very good intentions and good thought behind them. The biological mother of your now daughter had Mm -hmm. mild mental retardation, right? That's right. She never came to the point where she could take back this child. That's right. I mean, she grew up... I don't really know very much about her background. I mean, I wish I knew a lot more um, about her but um, and her family, as well as our daughter's birth um, father. But she grew up, I think, in very impoverished circumstances. And um, I think that whatever her skill level is now, that she could have been a a very different person if she had grown up in more um, appropriate circumstances. You write in the book how people look differently upon foster children than children adopted from other countries. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that's the case here? Many people who adopt from uh, internationally are middle or upper class. I mean, it's very expensive to adopt internationally. So I think um, they actually have One thing is better access to the media. People in the media have adopted internationally, so there's a lot more positive coverage. Um, And I'll I'll give you an example. Um, You know, kids who are adopted internationally are always referred to as orphans, um, and that's actually really just the way they can come into the 
the country. But in fact, most most of those children are not orphans at all, but it makes them sort of feel hopeless and unconnected to their birth families that they actually have in the countries. I mean, people are adopting internationally from another country's child welfare system. I always sort of joke with people, it'd be like if we took in elderly people from, you know, <laughs> from Russia or China, you know, we would never even think, you know, it's, um, and not to say that it's, it's not that it's wrong um, to do that. I mean, there are so many children in need all over the world, but I think that we need to look carefully um, and think carefully about what's really in the best for the child. So anyway, it's a very complicated situation, and it's not a, to be judgmental on an individual basis, but on a policy basis, um, we as Americans really need to think about the kids in our own system. And because if these kids are not well cared for, they are going to be the kids who end up homeless, uneducated, in prison. I mean, not all of them, but they're at much, much greater risk of that happening to them if they're not cared for in families. Sarah, if you had the power today to change just one thing about the foster care system, what would that be? Well, I think one thing would be much better funding in the legal system. The court system is very... um, you just you have tremendous delays. Um, there's not as much oversight um, as I mentioned in the book. The legal guardians that they have, I mean, they barely know the, <laughs> literally barely know the child or what the circumstances are of that family. So I don't understand how they couldn't be making judgments um, about them. That's one thing. Um, I think if we had um, more supports for birth families. Um, I don't know. There's, uh, I have a lot of <laughs> a lot of dreams, so high hopes. But hopefully, yes. this book will help to make that difference. Another mother co-parenting with the foster care system. Sarah Gerson saying, "Thank you so much for coming in." Oh, thanks for having me. Sarah Gerson-Sang's book is called Another Mother, Co-Parenting with a Foster Care System. It's out now from Vanderbilt University Press. That brings us to the end of this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Jody Abrican, and thank you for listening. Remember, this and every other Cityscape is archived online at WFUV.org, which is where you can also find information on how to download our free podcast. I'm George Boldarki. Have a great weekend.